before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and the Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you that you're here with us this morning. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus, the word of God, to show us more clearly who you are. And we thank you, Father God, that you have given us the written word of God, that it has been faithfully kept through thousands of years so that it can speak to us here afresh this morning. So we ask you, Father, to please open your words to each one of us individually. Pray that our hearts and minds might be open to what you have to say to us today and that it might be food for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For these uh, last few weeks, uh, as most of you will know, we're working our way through the story of Jacob and his sons, and which takes up the final chapters of Genesis. And last week, Pastor Joel took us through the sequence of events that Joseph orchestrated as his brothers went backwards and forwards between Canaan and Egypt. 
And it was these circumstances, the money returned in the sack and the requirement to bring Benjamin and, and the disastrous finding of Joseph's own silver cup in Benjamin's sack, which required the brothers to face up to what they had done to Joseph all those years ago and what they were going to do as regards Benjamin now. And it brings us to this uh, place in scripture that Simon has just read to us. And this is the climax of the story of the sons of Jacob. It's the resolution to all the tension that has been building up over the past 22 years since Joseph arrived in Egypt. 13 years as a servant and a prisoner, seven years of plentiful harvest, and now two years into the famine. And even before that, it's a resolution to the tension of the root cause of the whole sorry string of events from when his brothers were resentful of their father making a, a favorite of Joseph. And there are two main characters in this scene, apart from God. And the one is dressed Hebrew style, sort of loose shepherd's robe. He's full bearded, a weathered 50-something or other. And the other, 39 years old, clean-shaven, cropped hair, clean white linen tunic, complete with the regalia appropriate to the highest-ranking Egyptian official in the land after Pharaoh. Only Joseph appeared in our reading, but facing him is uh, having finished his impassioned plea on behalf of Benjamin and of Jacob, stands Judah. And he had said at the end of uh, chapter 44, Now therefore, please let your servant, Judah, remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. And the tension is palpable as he awaits Joseph's response. These two men, half-brothers, both sons of Jacob, and what a contrast. And what a contrast this meeting is to the event 22 years ago when Joseph was assaulted by his two big brother, uh, ten big brothers and bound and sold into slavery. Now Judah might look much the same outwardly, but inwardly he has been spun 180 degrees. It was his idea in the first place to sell Joseph for pieces of silver. May as well make some money out of him. And besides, he is our brother. And he was party to the callous deception the brothers played on their aging father, plunging him into decades of inconsolable grief, a daily reminder of their guilt. And we find that Jacob is still playing favorites, but it seems that Judah has come to terms with that. For here he offers his life in exchange for the young man so that he could return this son 
to his grief-stricken father. His life, Judah's life, for that of Benjamin. To return the son Jacob loved home to spare his father further grief. It was the exact opposite of what was done to Joseph and how Christ-like that is. And as for Joseph, he is understandably unrecognizable to his brothers, but though outwardly he might be exuding authority, inwardly he is now in shreds. At last, At last, he has the response from his brothers he had hoped to hear. Joseph had told them, only the one in whose possession the cup was found shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. But given the chance of abandoning Benjamin as they had abandoned him, Judah pleads that this not be the case, not this time. Wisdom and enormous self-control on Joseph's part have allowed events to arrive at a workable outcome, and now Joseph is undone. The room is cleared of non-family, and he sobs uncontrollably, so loudly, in fact, that he can be heard throughout the palace. So the tears signal the pressure that Joseph has been under. What is the content of these tears? There must be grief here expressed. For the lost years of family life, for all the suffering, the suffering of himself and that of his father, for the guilt borne by his brothers, for injustice that was done to him, for the anguish over all of those years of not knowing what had happened back home. The grief for so much pain and waste. But there would also have been relief. His father's okay. The first question he asks, although he's been told, Benjamin is okay. He can relinquish the facade that's cost him so much effort. He can be himself. And there must be joy too. His brothers has obviously had a change of heart. Relationships can be restored. And although they have not asked for it, he has already forgiven forgiven them. They owe him nothing. And there's also love. He calls them close. He reframes the picture. He offers them freedom from guilt. His love for them spills out. Hurry, fetch my father. Bring your children and grandchildren. I will provide for you here. He offers them life. Indeed, that is why, he says, he has gone ahead of them. He offers them reconciliation. How Christ-like. Offender and offended against both manifest the work of God in their lives, and between them, the family is rescued and restored. I think, what a lovely story. There's so much in this dysfunctional family that I can identify with. They should make it into a soap opera. And I like a happy ending. But as we know, scripture is not for entertainment. 
It's hard work. It's written to reveal to us the living God, the one who created us and before whom we are all accountable. From our perspective, we know that this historical family drama is actually a story within a story. It's a story in which we are inevitably caught up. The story in which God himself, through this nation, sets about rescuing and restoring a people for himself. People with whom he can enjoy relationship, drawn from every nation under the sun, just as he had planned from the beginning. The story of people enabled to return to the heart of Father God, who has grieved over them and gone to staggering lengths to win them back. So what do we learn? What has God revealed of himself here in the story of Jacob's sons? What are we to take note of? Well, it seems that Joseph has learned a thing or two about God in his life's journey, and what he has to say is somewhat disquieting. The brothers know it is their actions that have led him to being in Egypt. But three times, Joseph says, God sent me, verse 5. God sent me, verse 7. And so it was not you who sent me, it was God, in verse 8. And why? To preserve life, to preserve a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. And here Joseph is way ahead of his brothers because he is talking big picture stuff, the bigger story. He's learnt of the covenant promises from his father Jacob. He knows what, that God has promised to preserve this family. And in these dire circumstances, Joseph realises that God has spoken through him to Pharaoh and has been the means of providing for this family so they might survive. And he has been enabled through his own sufferings to, to view them within the overarching plan of God for the world of his time. Well, well done, Joseph. And that's fair enough. But what does this tell us about God? And it tells us that God is in relentless pursuit of the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and ultimately of his aim of providing the means of rescuing and saving the lives of all the world. That he will see his plan through, that he will keep his covenant promises despite the failings of this family he has chosen to work through. He has overruled the jealous intent of the brothers. And over in chapter 50, we read, Joseph says again, even though you intended harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. But what of God's methods? Did it have to be through suffering and injustice? We have also been discovering some uncomfortable things about God as we've worked through the sermons and also for many of us in our growth groups. We learnt in chapter 38 in the story of Judah and Tamar that he put to death 
two of Judah's sons, because one was wicked and the other displeasing. And over and over again we find the deceiver is deceived. Both Jacob and Judah are given a taste of their own medicine. But then, when Judah was deceived by his daughter-in-law, he grants Tamar what is actually her legitimate right, children. Two of them. And both boys. Do we approve? And this is a blessing for Judah too, two new sons. And then, of course, he allows Joseph to fear for his life, to suffer assault, betrayal, shame, enslavement, to suffer loneliness, separation from his beloved father and brother, anxiety and bewilderment, wrongful accusation, injustice, imprisonment, finally to be forgotten. And the guilty brothers believe that God hasn't missed a thing, that he has seen and remembers all, and that he will bring, and indeed is bringing, retribution for their actions in this drama. But we've also discovered that God reveals what is to come, He plans, he gives wisdom, that he communicates by dream to both Hebrew and Egyptian, that he's merciful, he returns to Jacob not only Benjamin and Simeon, but also his lost son, Joseph. We learn that he is with the suffering Joseph throughout all of these circumstances, and that within these circumstances, he blesses abundantly. So in summary, we've learned that he's to be held in awe, that he doesn't always act in ways we expect him to or think he should. He's not entirely predictable according to our standards and his ways with us are not always comfortable. I think of C.S. Lewis as he says of the lion Aslan, he's not a tame lion. God is not a tame God. He's not just there to do our bidding. But shouldn't he? Couldn't he have worked it out without all the suffering? He could have sent rain, couldn't he? Do away with the famine altogether. He could have had Joseph captured by the Ishmaelites as he wandered round the wilderness. They would have gotten him to Egypt as God had planned and avoided the brothers' involvement altogether. This is truly uncomfortable. Does this suffering fit with the image that we have of God's character? Some commentators would give the impression that they believe so. One writes that the tender love of the Lord designs suffering for us to test our faith. Another that we should see all the hardship and suffering that comes to us in life as something that God brings to us to do us good, strengthening our trust in him. I have to say, 
I feel somewhat sick at heart as I read such stuff. Have these scholars watched the news lately? Have they counseled a woman or a child who has been battered by their husband or father? Have they doctored a patient eaten away by leprosy? We know that sin and suffering uh, and sickness are in this world because we are responsible for it, not God. God is sovereign, yes, and in his sovereignty he granted us free will, which is how we've gotten into this mess in the first place. And we're held responsible for our own actions and reap the consequences. Joseph said to his brothers, you sold me here. He didn't say, it wasn't your fault. So we can see that God allows suffering and we can see that God will work out his purpose through suffering. But does God plan suffering, something that God brings us? to do us good. Scholarly as these commentators are, uh, I believe we heard the truth uh, from children only two weeks ago here when we had the International Justice Mission presentation. And uh, we were told that the children had been told a little of the suffering of the children in the Philippines. And they said, this is not God's will. A child can see that the suffering is not God's will. In Jeremiah 32, uh, we read of the Israelites offering up their children in sacrifice to the god Moloch. And God says, in effect, it didn't even occur to me that you would do such a thing. If everything did happen according to God's will, surely Jesus would not ask us to daily pray God's will into place. So what are we to believe about God? This is really important. Because what we believe about God shapes our worldview and determines our values. If we are believing wrong things about God, if we are imagining he is someone he is not, we may be worshipping or we may be rejecting a fictional character, imaginary, one we made up. An idol. Well, as it happens, God has given us an unambiguous image of himself, which displays his heart and his character in a language we can understand. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Moreover, that he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If we want to know the heart, the character of God, we need only look at Jesus. Not only his life and ministry, but more importantly, his suffering and his death on our behalf. Love personified and acting out of his yearning for restored relationship with us. Everything we understand about God and his dealings with us has to be interpreted in light of the cross, for it is here that God has chosen to demonstrate his heart for us in sending his son as he sent Joseph to make provision for us, 
so that we could be returned to the heart of the Father to mend his broken heart. Can we make sense of the suffering? Does it seem to be fair? When Job challenged God to explain himself, what reasons did God give for what happened to Job? He gave none. He simply reiterated who he was and asked Job to consider the wonders of creation which were by God's hand. I don't think God was prevaricating, holding out on Job. I think the task for God must have been akin to trying to teach a two-year-old quantum physics. Where do you start? You have to start with one plus one is two. As God says, my ways are not your ways. Our minds are finite. God's is infinite. Somehow or other, we need to settle to the mystery because our finite minds cannot contain the entire truth. More usefully, one commentator advises, we can't ordinarily know why particular individuals suffer the way they do. But in the light of God's revelation in Christ, our assumption should be that their suffering is something that we should oppose in the name of God, rather than accepting it as coming from God. We should be asking, how can we bring glory to God in this situation? And this is just what Joseph did. He walked with God in the dark places. He served with a servant heart and cared for people without knowing the end from the beginning. He had absolute faith in God's ability to interpret the dreams and no hesitation in trusting his own ability to hear and speak out that revelation. He was enabled to speak out boldly when suddenly and unexpectedly, after 13 years of captivity, the opportunity was given. If Joseph had given up on God, if he had not responded to his appalling circumstances in the Christ-like way that he did, this story would not, could not, have unfolded as it did. But it was not just Joseph's suffering. All the family suffered. Jacob suffered terrible grief, but so did the brothers. The way the brothers responded to Joseph's handling of their circumstances circumstances shows that their sense of guilt was always with them. It had been in the air around them like a septic fog, troubling them for decades, colouring how they interpreted the events of their journeys to Egypt, and this was not without effect. Judah's sense of guilt, the daily reminders as he witnessed his father's grief, acted as a ringer to squeeze his heart so that Judah could see and acknowledge the wrong 
and choose to change his attitude toward his father. He repented of his actions. Without this response, the ever more difficult circumstances in which they found themselves, reconciliation within the family would not have been possible. And this story would not, could not, have unfolded as it did. God would have to have found another way of fulfilling his covenant promises. Here there is a whole web of interconnected threads, who knows how many, within which God achieves his good ends. We've seen in this text this morning that God is totally committed to fulfilling his big picture plan for the world, no matter what. Joseph was granted the opportunity to see this for himself in his own life. He was given a measure of understanding of the circumstances that he battled through. He couldn't, of course, have imagined that we would be benefiting from this story nearly 4,000 years later. That's a daunting thought, to think that 4,000 years later somebody might be benefiting from our story. But God, as we have also seen, is not just working out his big picture plan. He's also working in the individual stories of each beloved human being. And what is God's avowed purpose for each individual? To rescue and restore us to the heart of Father God. And in so doing, to grow us into Christ-likeness, as he did with Judah and with Joseph. Their positive responses to God's hand in their lives enabled God to work out his purposes through them. If we are to learn from Judah and Joseph, we can, like them, choose to respond to difficult circumstances in a way which honours God. If we do not, who knows what we might miss out on. Our difficult circumstances might be of our own making. Like Judah, we might be suffering the consequences of our own sin. Our difficult circumstances might be of someone else's making. And like Joseph, we are suffering the consequences of someone else's sin. Or simply the consequences of living in a world corrupted by sin. But as we trust God in difficult circumstances in which we find ourselves, and as we continue to respond in a God-honoring, Christ-like manner, we can safely leave God to work out his purpose as he weaves our stories usefully into his big picture plan. This is an act of faith, and I don't know how Joseph worked out his journey of faith with God, because he lived before Christ. Um, Even when we're not understanding the whys of suffering, when we're not necessarily seeing the big picture in our lives, we just keep on choosing to trust in God, whose heart, whose character, whose love for us we see manifest at Calvary. I often see my journey of faith 
in terms of surfing. Uh, not that I've ever had the opportunity to do so, as I grew up in a town located on a river estuary in England, the water was cold and muddy and the waves about 20 centimetres high. But I like to watch Bondi Rescue, not only for the sun and the surf, but in it I learn the best of Aussie male culture. Good-hearted men working together to save lives. And I think, well, that could be church, couldn't it? Except they're wearing board shorts. <laughs> but the people that I see needing saving are always the ones without a surfboard. My son, who used to surf, told me, Mum, when you get dumped by a wave and you're churned around and around in the surf, you need to open your eyes so that you can see where the light is and you swim toward the light. It wasn't that comfortable for me to learn this from my son. <laughs> but I thought, what a great message for a sermon. If you're being churned around and around by circumstances and don't know how to get through, you open your eyes and you look for the light and you swim toward the light. You seek the light of the world and you swim toward him for in him is all that is needful for life. But when I imagine myself in the surf, I've always got my surfboard. And I don't think Jesus would mind being likened to a surfboard. Most of life's circumstances are like uh, the swell rolling into the beach. And so most times I'm sitting on my board, dangling my feet in the water of shark bait. And I simply ride up and down on the waves. But sometimes circumstances are so rough I'm tossed off my board, but I'm still clinging to it. And eventually, I bob up again, gasping for breath, but getting through the worst of it. And sometimes, just sometimes, when I see the next big wave coming, I find the strength and agility to hop onto my board and ride the wave. Me and Jesus together. Me doing my bit, Jesus doing his. Where are we going to end up this time, Lord? What's the adventure this time? Perhaps it's the same with you. And whether we arrive safely on Bondi Beach, or whether we arrive safely on the shores of the Crystal Sea, we can trust that God will have worked out his purpose in our individual lives, just as we are trusting him to see the big story through to a glorious end. May we keep on trusting God and responding to him in a Christ-like manner. Thank you, Father God. You're in charge of the big story. Amen.